Good evening and, and welcome. It's a great honour tonight uh, for us to welcome to Wolfson uh, Dr. Vara Vika Freiberger, who was president of Latvia from 1999 to 2007, and who is currently president of the World Leadership Alliance Club de Madrid. During her presidency of her country, she led Latvia into membership of the EU and of NATO, and was special envoy to the Secretary General on United Nations reform. From 2007 to 2010, she was vice chair of the Reflection Group on the long-term future of Europe, and she chaired the high-level group on freedom and pluralism of the media in the EU in 2011 to 2012. Like Isaiah Berlin, she was born in Riga. She left Latvia with her parents at the end of World War II and went to school first in a refugee camp in Germany, then lived in Morocco and in Canada, and was awarded a PhD at McGill University in 1965. She was professor of psychology at Montreal University for many years, and then returned home in 1998 to head the Latvian Institute. She's a member of 31 international organizations, including the Global Leadership Foundation. And she's here, I think, on her way to the Chatham House Conference in London next month. As well as her active representation in the global arena of the causes of liberty, equality, and social justice, she's also known for her work on psycholinguistics and semiotics, and for her analysis of the oral literature of Latvia, particularly Latvian folk songs. She produced a CD of these songs on which she sings herself, songs which she learned from her mother. And in addition to her many publications and public speeches, she's also writing a memoir about her childhood. I've noticed in her speeches on politics, economics and government that she often makes a commonsensical appeal to shared humanity and humane values. So in receiving the Hayek Medal in 2009, citing Isaiah Berlin on freedom, she said this, the essence of freedom is the possibility of making choices, be they conscious or not, and irrespective of our beliefs either in free will or predestination. This Europe that is your inheritance and mine is the cumulative result of all the choices made by those who went before. The Europe of tomorrow will be shaped by the choices that we make today but I would not presume to claim that our choices will be more enlightened, informed, and rational than those of our predecessors. The best that we can hope to do is to avoid the most grievous of their errors. If we can manage that, it will at least be something. At a time when Britain is facing some potentially grievous errors and choices over its membership of Europe, it is a particular pleasure to welcome President Vika Freiberger to the Oxford Centre for Life Writing at Wolfson College to give us her autobiographical talk on European security and defence, a personal account from Latvia's perspective. It's, as I say, a great honour to have her here today. Please make her very welcome. Dear Madam President, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when one stands in front of an audience uh, in a setting where life history and, and life writing is one of the uh, academic fields, I thought it's a wonderful opportunity to engage uh, in that navel-gazing and uh, egotistical exercise which is to tell about one's life. But even as I do so, uh, because of course, what, are, what more so interesting subject than to talk about oneself? Um, the point of, I think, of the interest of any given life uh, is generally that we try to find some meaning in it. And this search for meaning is of course most important for the person themselves. All of us, uh, as we grow up, uh, are faced with a certain milieu in which we are born. And I can remember from my earliest childhood feeling a bit like a, an alien from outer space dropped down on this planet Earth uh, among these adults 
uh, who uh, were looming very tall above me, uh, but who frequently seemed to misunderstand totally what children were about. And, uh, and I remember several times saying to myself, it, they seem to have strange rules. They say one thing that children ought to do, and they do the same, or, or something else. They're not consistent in what they require of children. They seem to think the worst of children always. And I used to particularly get annoyed when I thought that automatically children lie. I must admit I did try lying a few times uh, when it seemed convenient to do so. And it worked out so badly uh, that, uh, and I was so ashamed that I decided it, it wasn't worth doing. But having come to that momentous decision, you see, if ever an adult told me that, oh, that child is lying, I would get exceedingly annoyed and I swore to myself, when I grow up, I will really tell these adults how unfair they are to children, how little they understand them and how they absolutely do not listen to them as they should. Uh, so uh, it's been many years. Uh, since that promise to myself, and I can fulfill it tonight. I can tell you that, please, when you are in contact with young children, remember that. They are little persons. They are individuals. And they expect to be respected, even if they are tiny and small. I remember going around for a walk near our, where our apartment was in Riga, and uh, all of a sudden seeing sort of a forest of legs around me, uh, of grown-ups, uh, and I couldn't see my, uh, the houses, their facades, and the signs by which I would orient myself as to how to walk back to our apartment house. And I started crying. A lady came up and said, child, why are you crying? I said, because I'm lost. And she says, well, where do you live? I said, if I knew that, I wouldn't be crying. <laughs> Eventually, they somehow managed to help me, and, and it was just around the corner, and I, I happily got home. But one does have these, these sorts of misunderstandings. But uh, as you know, teenagers are supposed to have crises in their lives, uh, and they frequently um, center around finding who they are. Uh, nowadays, it is admitted publicly that even one's gender identification is not an automatic thing. Uh, and just because uh, you were wrapped in, in, in pink or in blue when you were a baby uh, doesn't ensure that uh, as a teenager and as an adult uh, you will have uh, uh, one or the other sexual orientation. This used to be kept as a sort of dark secret, uh, but people now realize that really there are choices to be made and they are partly biologically determined and they're part, and surely uh, in large part influenced uh, by culture. And at that age, I think it becomes particularly acute uh, to have a sense of one's identity, uh, to have a sense of what one's life mission is about, or does one have a life mission? And I think there's nothing more disheartening than to, uh, to fall into what uh, Durkheim uh, at one time referred to as anomie, the sense of rootlessness, the sense of not belonging anywhere, uh, of nothing being of much importance, uh, everything being equally important or unimportant, uh, and uh, the, if you like, the deconstruction uh, approach uh, that modern democracy uh, has increasingly uh, been practicing, and uh, whether out of true uh, liberal uh, convictions or simple genuflections in the direction of political correctness, uh, we frequently are told that uh, nationalism is a bad thing, Patriotism is a bad thing. I, regionalism is a bad thing. Uh, caring for religion is a bad thing. But next thing, by the time you eliminate everything from people's lives, that are the sort of things that give them meaning, identification with a larger group, and allow them to move out of their own egos and their own selves into a larger, feel a part of a community. Well, you've actually impoverished their lives and you've left them lost and bereft. And I think there are a lot of young people nowadays uh, who will, for instance, go off uh, on invitations on the internet, uh, converting to a, to a religion they actually know nothing about, uh, 
quite uh, quite excited uh, at the prospect uh, of uh, of cutting uh, other people's heads uh, and and being uh, seen by the world on YouTube even if they have to wear a mask and they find it that it's a, it's a way of belonging it's a way of giving sense to their lives it gives them a goal uh, it gives them satisfaction having accomplished something and when you have when they live in a if you like a very civilized uh, quiet Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot sort of uh, English uh, village uh, type of environment, uh, frequently I think that unless they do have strong family attachments and a strong community, which is less and less the case with communities growing and changing uh, and the movements of populations, people can be uh, really truly bereft uh, and lose their identity. For people like me, uh, identity became one of the central uh, themes uh, in my life uh, by force of necessity, uh, not out of philosophical choice because I had nothing better to do. I was simply confronted uh, with having to think about who I am, uh, what should I be doing, where do I belong and how do I relate with other people. The uh, you must have heard the phrase that every life is worth a novel. And I'm sure that there are many lives that are much more interesting than many a novel that we find uh, in the bookstores. Uh, the thing is how to present it and how to describe it. Uh, yesterday at the Asaya Berlin lecture, we heard uh, uh, from our uh, presenter that it takes a writer, I mean, by quoting Asaya Berlin, uh, Henry Harding said, uh, it takes a writer of genius to actually choose what are the elements, what are the details that are worth retelling to create the texture and the atmosphere and the feel uh, of a certain life, of a certain epoch. Uh, when you look back on your own life, it is very strange how people differ in what they remember. When I was a small child, I was convinced, first of all, it took me a long time to realize that we do not live in an eternal present, that time flows, even though physicists tell us it's an illusion, but the fact is that it does change things. And uh, I was particularly struck uh, at one point, uh, my mother was leafing through a photo album, and there was a picture of her and her cousins laughing and leaning out of a train window uh, and waiting to uh, her brother and some other young men standing on the station platform. And they all looked so very happy and so young and so good looking. Uh, and I said to mother, but where am I in that picture? And she says, well, you weren't even born. And I truly was shocked. I was absolutely shocked at the thought that my mother had had a life before me of which I had not been a part. Uh, uh, and, uh, and it was very, very difficult for me uh, to, to accept that, and I felt jealous. I felt jealous of the part that my mother had a, had a different life before she'd been my mother, uh, and, uh, and that here she was laughing away, uh, and I wasn't even there. It, 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 was, it was truly upsetting. Uh, the, the sense of linkage and family as well, I think was very important, and children do listen to what adults say about them. One of the things that used to annoy me as a small girl is when mother would get uh, uh, friends, women friends, in for tea, they would sit and chat with each other, and they'd talk above my head as if I wasn't there. And the friend would say, well, Anne-Marie, uh, what is she like, uh, your daughter? And she would say, oh, she's very, very obedient. I merely have to look at her and she already knows what I wish and I don't have to scold her or anything. I don't have to punish her and whatnot. And, uh, and I'd, I'd sort of stand there and say, well, she's talking about me as if I wasn't there. Uh, but then interestingly enough, the, some of the comments I started paying attention. And I do believe that the comments that the child hears that are being told about them influence their attitudes and do sit down somewhere in their subconscious just as Freud and other psychoanalysts have claimed that it does. 
And uh, it's interesting then to wonder how many of the remarks that the child hears in their childhood will leave a mark forever and which will be simply uh, passing things that they don't pay attention to. For instance, I would hear uh, my mother's friends saying, oh, the poor little orphan. That poor little orphan. Why? Because uh, my father had uh, perished uh, at sea and been buried in the Atlantic Ocean um, a few weeks after my birth and he had never seen me. That too used to upset me because the fact that I hadn't seen him that made sense but that, that he hadn't seen me somehow seemed to endanger my, my, my very existence and my, you know, my, my own father hadn't seen me. It seemed very upsetting. And then these people would tell me that I'm a poor little orphan <laughs> and that, that struck me also as somehow threatening because I personally felt like a privileged child living a privileged life in the very center of the universe and, uh, and being very happy about it. And being called a poor little orphan was a bit unsettling until when I learned to read and started reading Latvian folk tales, I discovered that were, uh, there were a great many uh, that had for heroes, not just male heroes, but also female ones. And unlike many feminists who condemn folk tales as being actually uh, pernicious uh, and, and sexist uh, and, and literature that should not be given to children, uh, I think that the folk tales of my country had a great deal to shape both my ethical standards and my sense of who I am. Because the poor little orphan, who is the heroine of many a Latvian folk tale, you see, frequently turns out uh, to go through trials and tribulations, much as like Mr. Baura here at Oxford, uh, when he wrote about the hero's journey, uh, or Joseph Campbell uh, about the quest as being the central narrative of a hero's life. Well, in folk tales, uh, it is not just the hero who has a quest uh, and a path to follow and a certain destiny and a reward at the end, which means marrying the princess and getting half the kingdom. Mind you, half the kingdom, not the whole of it. And uh, the, the little orphan girl does get, and it's not just like Cinderella marrying the prince, uh, which you might say is, is a rather sexist way of, of uh, getting uh, social advancement uh, through marriage and not through her own merits. Our Latvian orphan girl uh, got her social advancement on her own merits, and that was very uh, inspiring. Uh, uh, but she was, she was, she had a good heart and uh, she would help all those who asked for her help, either human or, uh, or uh, apple tree. An apple tree would ask her, could you please shake off the apples because they're too heavy and, and she would do that. Whatever, like she'd meet a cow on the way and the cow would say, I need milking, can you milk me? And she'd stop and do that even though she had a, a quest and a different task to do. She would always stop and help somebody and she did get richly rewarded in the end. Uh, whereas what the Latvian folk tales called daughter, uh, the one who is uh, her, her stepmother's real child and, and, and supposedly gets spoiled and who is selfish and doesn't help anybody, gets punished and sometimes even gruesomely punished in the end. And I do believe that myself, having been born uh, into a country that in many ways, many Latvians have said we are a nation of orphans because of the history of our country, and being personally actually uh, an orphan from the, practically the moment uh, of birth, uh, the narratives that one has, the, the pattern of narrative, the idea of, uh, of the life path that offers hope, uh, that offers uh, something positive to strive for, and yes, uh, difficult to admit for somebody who's been trained as a scientist and an experimental scientist, somehow uh, the uh, operation of unknown forces into your in your life, uh, which uh, seem to, under what apparently miraculous situations, bring it to a happy conclusion when it seemed statistically most unlikely that a happy conclusion could be expected. And I think that sort of thing has happened throughout my life narrative and my life path time and time again. 
Another folktale motif that um, I remember from my childhood and that seemed to materialize in my, in my life uh, story was uh, that uh, the goddess of fortune uh, and uh, of destiny, whose name is Lima in Latvian, uh, much like Athene did uh, in the uh, ancient Greek, the Homeric epics, walks among humans uh, taking on uh, various guises. You know that the gods, uh, according to the beliefs of the ancient Greeks, the, the gods might walk among us and they take on uh, either uh, the uh, swineherd's uh, face or, or anybody at all. And Athena, when she, she had advice to give to Telemachus or, or to Odysseus, uh, could appear under various guises and uh, save him uh, out of many dangers uh, and send him on the right path and way. Well, um, several times, I must say, in my life, there were moments when uh, our family, and particularly myself and my path and my desire to get education, were seriously, seriously threatened by the circumstances which are absolutely not conducive to uh, my getting an education and seemed that I would be, be blocked absolutely whichever way I turned, just like in the folk tales. The road was blocked, it was impossible to proceed. And I would literally have, at least three or four times in my life, a completely unknown stranger, a woman, walk up to me and saying, saying, aren't you the little girl who was at Monique's first uh, communion uh, and uh, who got champagne poured all over her pretty blonde locks and her lovely pink dress? And I'd say, well, yes, uh, her brother had opened a bottle of champagne that had been shaken up uh, in the heat and I got, the champ I got soaked in champagne. Well, uh, an accident, an accident happened. She remembered me when she met me on the street. She'd come to visit uh, out, way out in the bled in the countryside in Morocco, uh, the uh, wife of the director of the company. And she asked me how I was and I said, I am rather desperate because uh, I'm finishing up uh, primary school, we had a one-room sc schoolhouse in this barrage de Dawat, in this uh, hydroelectric power station that was being built. And I said, and, and I'm supposed to go to high school to, to Casablanca, but I don't know how, how to go about it uh, and what needs to be done. Uh, and uh, no, nobody will help me because the teacher was not the, the, the one, we had one single teacher in that one-room schoolhouse. She, because I was a foreigner, she was not very interested in helping me. And this lady, who remembered me because of the champagne poured over my pink dress, said, why, my best friend is the director uh, of the Collège Mersultan, the Jeune Fille in Casablanca. I will talk to her and see if she can find a place for you as a boarder. Uh, and, uh, and you must remember that in two weeks there's a an exam being you, that you have to write in Casablanca, you have to get to Casablanca, you have to write an exam because it's a competition. And I didn't, my teacher hadn't told me about that. And literally because of an accident, uh, a strange woman came up to me and gave me the magical key, the magical answer that allowed me to actually continue uh, and, and get a high school education because things really did look grim. And this is just one example of, of how things happen. The narratives that we have are also embedded in the narratives of our own culture. And the narratives that I heard as a child during the Second World War, I was very early struck by the fact that there was us and them, our side and their side. We had a Soviet occupation and uh, the newspapers that my dad read in the evening had great big red, uh, red headlines. Uh, I remember the, that's how I started about at the age of three getting interested in letters because I would see these red, big fat red letters uh, on the heading of a, of a daily newspaper which had been renamed Tsing, Combat. Uh, and there was always on the first page uh, a headline in smaller letters but in red uh, that had, uh, and I would ask, what is that snake-like 
shape. Uh, what does it represent? Every day one sees it on the first page. Well, that was the S for Stalin, for Comrade Stalin, who was doing all these wonderful good things uh, for the Latvian people after the uh, Red Army had invaded the country and occupied it, and presumably annexed it exactly in the way that Crimea was uh, invaded and annexed. And, um, well, uh, a year passed, uh, and the, the Red Army retreated, and the Nazi army came marching in. Uh, and uh, I remember my mother being very excited and saying, oh, we're finally being liberated from the communists, uh, and, and we will uh, we'll get back our independence. And she rushed to the, uh, to the janitor uh, of the house, uh, uh, who was a woman. They found the Latvian flag, which the janitor is supposed to keep for you know, holidays and so on. And they rushed up to the, to the attic and hung out the Latvian national flag. Within minutes, a team from the Gestapo showed up and said, what's that rag hanging out there? And my mother was absolutely outraged. And, and she says, well, uh, she, she spoke German since her childhood. Uh, my grandmother, having been Baltic German, uh, she said, why, aren't we liberated? Aren't, uh, aren't we free again? Uh, I, we've hung out the, the Latin flag. And he says, oh, my dear lady, you, you are gravely mistaken. There is no such thing as a Latvia anymore. It is gone from the map. Uh, and, uh, and there's an Ostland. This happens to be Ostland, and this is a German-occupied uh, territory. My poor parents, along with all other Latvians, of course, had no clue at all that Hitler and Stalin had been friends and partners for two years, and that in the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, or if you like, the Hitler-Stalin Pact of August 23, uh, 1938, they had split up Eastern Europe among themselves. And this is why when Hitler invaded Poland on September 1, um, Stalin's troops invaded Poland on September 17th from the other side and did not at all come uh, to the aid uh, of the Poles who were fighting uh, the Nazi army on their western border. So um, we had these, these changes and then as a child I would listen to the radio and of course the radio was censored. My, my dad would uh, get up in the middle of the night and make sure that the, all the uh, curtains were closed and so on and try and listen in to the BBC to hear how the war was going and what we might expect. Uh, and, and, the, and the Gestapo had a special kind of equipment that they would drive along the streets and, uh, and somehow they could pick up if you're listening to the BBC. I still know don't to this day how technically it was done, but it, it was and it was very dangerous. And he tried to get some idea as to which way the way was uh, the war was going. We had no idea what had been decided either by Molotov and Ribbentrop between the Germans, uh, the Nazis and the communists. We had no idea about what Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Churchill and Mr. Stalin had decided at Yalta, at Lebadia Castle, when Churchill, as is uh, attested in his memoirs, uh, said at one moment to his aides, well, you see, as we have these talks with Stalin, if at some point uh, he says that he, uh, he wishes to keep the Baltic states um, uh, as, a, if you like, a reward uh, for fighting uh, the Nazi forces, then, of course, give them to him. Uh, you know, who cares about the Baltic countries? Even though Britain formally never recognized the, the annexation of the Baltic countries, and for which we're grateful, obviously, uh, and, uh, and that at least officially it wasn't done, but behind the scenes and uh, in the Yalta conference, we were sold down the drain, but none of us knew this. You see, the general public, in many, many cases, in historical events, they have their own life history, their own life uh, goals, their aims, uh, and their hopes. But around them, there are larger forces at work, and those are the historical forces. And the historical forces can be of various kinds. They're obviously, at some point, determined by leaders of countries. And the bigger the country, uh, the more influence the, its leaders have on the fate uh, of a larger number of people. 
what is decided in a tiny country like Luxembourg maybe does not affect uh, so many other Europeans, but what is decided uh, between Britain, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union clearly affected tens of millions of people for decades of their lives until the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. These decisions are taken, it's, it's a stroke of a pen, uh, it's, uh, it's maybe a week or two of, uh, of discussions and debates, uh, and it could be like when we are sitting here and we will have a question and answer question, uh, period. But uh, the decisions they take uh, will carry along so many lives, millions of them to tragedy and to death, and tens of millions uh, of others uh, to frequently uh, lives under oppression and tyranny, or others uh, uh, throw them off into the four winds of the world as the refugees. There were seven million refugees from Eastern Europe at the end of the war uh, in Germany uh, in, uh, in May 1945. Uh, Germany was divided into four zones. Half of it was given to the Russians for reasons that are beyond me and I don't understand to this day. And the rest was split up uh, between the British zone in the north where we were uh, living, uh, the French zone in which my husband Imans and his family at the time were living, and an American zone, which we all envied because one had the best food there. They would used to get care packages uh, from America and they had, uh, they had much better food than we had uh, in the other zones uh, in Germany. And these refugees, by the way, we're talking a lot about immigration, about movements of population, uh, what to do with flows of refugees who flee from what they consider unbearable, unacceptable, uh, intolerable situations. My parents certainly did that. They left everything behind. At one point, they packed two suitcases. Uh, took, uh, my mother took a baby in, in, uh, on her arm, uh, and I carried a tiny little suitcase with her nappies and, and some soap, and that poor child was dead within three weeks of us leaving home. She died on my uh, father's birthday and was buried on my mother's birthday at the end of January. When they went off and left home, they did not know what uh, was awaiting them, uh, what sort of trials and, and, and tribulations they were going to go through. They had, like many refugees said, what we saw in 1940-41 of the Soviet regime to us is unacceptable. We are not ready to spend the rest of our lives under those conditions, but we had no idea what was uh, expecting us elsewhere. They did have some illusions. Uh, my mother particularly was convinced that reason and justice would prevail, and that the League of Nations, of which Latvia, as an independent country, had been a member, that the League of Nations would restore the pre-war order uh, and uh, uh, when the war finally came to an end, the Germans would withdraw uh, from their occupied, occupied territories, France, Belgium, Netherlands, uh, Norway, Denmark, uh, Luxembourg, back within their frontiers, uh, and the Soviet Union would uh, uh, withdraw its Red Army uh, within its frontiers. And nothing of the kind uh, happened at all. Uh, the United Nations was created of course, to replace the defunct uh, League of Nations. Uh, but as you know, the way it was structured, it was structured to give special privileges to the winners uh, of the Second World War. And so that having been winners in the Second World War, uh, the Soviet Union, in spite of being a dreadfully bloody tyranny, uh, was treated uh, on the same footing uh, as the Allies, given the security seat at the, uh, at the United Nations which, by the way, was inherited by the Russian Federation for reasons that are not as clear as they might be, because the Russian Federation is a completely different legal entity uh, and, and a different country uh, from the Soviet Union, which was, after all, made up of 15 different republics, including uh, the Baltic republics and other countries. But these are the, the strange turns of history where, you see, lives are influenced by them uh, who sometimes, or most of the time, don't know what is being decided. They have no way of knowing what the consequences will be or what will happen. 
and they have to take decisions. I, uh, the quote that was given, you see, why was I so keen uh, throughout my life uh, to develop this philosophy of conviction that human beings do have choices, that their choices do make a difference? It's very simple. It's, I feel it's the only thing that gives meaning to human life in that great big chaos of historical events over which we are helpless to influence events, most of us, most of the time. Some of us are given occasional opportunities to, to give a slight push to the wheel of history. And this is how I look at the eight years that I had the two terms I served as president. I was given the chance to really work very hard and to lobby for ideas such as the need for enlargement of NATO, even including the Baltic countries, even if Russia will not be happy about it, because what, what's Russia to us and, and we to Russia? Once that the Soviet Union has fallen apart, we're, we're different countries, and each should define and should choose their own fate, rather than that fate being dictated uh, by a neighbor just simply because they happen to be larger than you are. Uh, the whole principle of freedom of choice, uh, autonomy, uh, the, the ability uh, to choose your path, and of course accept responsibility for it, without these strictures uh, from somewhere up high. And I'm not talking about the gods on Olympus uh, or, uh, or the, uh, the Lord of the Bible or of the Koran. I am talking about human beings right here on earth who assume to themselves the right to determine the fates, not just of their own nation, but those of a great many other people elsewhere. To return to my own story, you see, uh, if, you, if you look at the my life path, then curiously enough, um, it does follow uh, m several mythical patterns uh, in the sense of, yes, just like the orphan girl of folk tales, I was saved. Uh, and, and I had magical helpers showing up. Um, uh, Prop, uh, in 1929, published a book in Russian which was only translated into Italian and English and later French in, uh, starting 1968, did a, a morphological analysis of the Russian folk tales. This is a Russian formalist who said that all stories, all folk tales, actually have a, a certain structure. There are certain functions that happen. The hero leaves home. Uh, the hero uh, encounters uh, a magical helper. Uh, the hero encounters a villain. Uh, the hero has a fight with the villain. Uh, the, there's a victory of the, vic the hero. The hero returns home, etc., etc. There are various patterns uh, of that nature. And, uh, and then, of course, we have the Odyssey. And as I, I read the Odyssey, uh, just as we had left Riga, uh, and we were waiting uh, on the west coast of Latvia uh, for one of the last ships uh, to leave the country, because my parents were hoping that the war would end and we would need to be refugees. Uh, we left, I think, with the next to last ship that was not torpedoed by, by, uh, by the Russian forces. Uh, and in the meantime, we were staying with relatives who had a Latvian translation of the Odyssey. And, and I read the Odyssey, and I was very much struck by the fact that Ulysses leaves home uh, and wanders, is forced to wander about uh, for what seemed to me an inordinately long time, 20 years, and then finally gets back to Ithaca. And I think that remained with me, that story I was just about around my seventh birthday that I read that story. And I think it again remained in my subconscious as a sort of feeling that if, <laughs> if Odysseus could do it, uh, why not somebody else? But uh, uh, the, the simple complication with that was that uh, Odysseus uh, returned, and there were uh, the other suitors of Penelope, of course, whom he did have to get rid of in a, in a rather brutal way. Uh, we did not have much hopes. Uh, a nation of just over two million of uh, having any kind of, say, uh, armed confrontation with the, with the Soviet Union and winning back, winning back our land 
by, uh, by war effort or something of the sort. Nor did we look forward to a third world war, a nuclear war before, be, between the Americans and the Russians, so that there was a sort of sense of resignation. And I remember myself back in 1968, the 50th anniversary of the foundation of the Latvian Republic, uh, speaking to a group of Latvian exiles and saying to them, uh, right is on our side, international right, uh, the right of nations of self-determination is on our side. We will have a country someday. Uh, and it will not come as a result of a war. It will come because the system under which it is now living is totally inadequate. Uh, it is a colossus on, on feet of clay. Uh, and someday the feet of clay will collapse and the whole thing will fall apart. And we will get our country back. Unfortunately, I have no idea when that might be and whether any of us will live long enough to see it. Well, I lived long enough to see it, and not only that, but to actually, like Odysseus, uh, return uh, to my native land. But imagine if it took him 20 years to wander around the Mediterranean. I left Riga, our apartment in Riga, at the age of six, and I returned at the age of 60, having taken early retirement from academic life in Canada. So that was a rather long, long time uh, to remain faithful to the idea that you do have a country that matters, uh, that it would be nice someday to do something for it, because this is what uh, certain uh, groups in exile among the Latvians in various parts of the world uh, had fostered in my generation who left the native land as children that they had a sacred duty to remain faithful to their roots, to their culture, to their language. Why? Because our compatriots back home were robbed of their choices. Uh, they, living, they were living under a totalitarian rule. We who lived scattered in democratic countries, and scattered, by the way, because Europe in 1949 and 1950 was unable to absorb seven million Europeans as refugees and chased, literally, literally chased them away. Now we are beating our chests and, and, uh, and feeling guilty because we are not able to receive uh, the refugees from all parts of the world who seek a better life here. But when I was a child, we were literally pushed out of Europe and we were told, you have three months to decide whether you're going to Venezuela, uh, to Argentina, uh, to uh, Australia, uh, or, as it so happened, uh, a group of French um, engineers came by through the camp uh, and said, we're looking for technicians to build a hydroelectric dam in Morocco. And uh, my parents looked at the map and said, Morocco is closer to Europe than Australia. When Latvia becomes free, we'll, we'll have an easier time getting back than if we go to Brazil or Australia. They were convinced that Latvia would be free one day. And we lived in these illusions for, well, over half a century. But you see, uh, it's much as with dreams that individuals have. Some dream of becoming rich, some dream of becoming famous, some dream uh, of becoming, uh, writing uh, the great American or the great British novel and getting the Booker Prize, uh, or, or being recognized as a philosophical genius or, or whatever your aim in life is. Uh, and you may have that dream for a very long time before you realize that it actually really, it comes true. And my conviction has been that unless you do have a dream, as Martin Luther King said, you're not as likely to ever see it's realized. Because things, uh, for on the one hand, there are these blind forces in the world, and they swirl you around like, like leaves in an autumn wind, and you don't know what is going to happen to you. And you're swept along by historical events, you're helpless. Millions of people get murdered uh, in a Holocaust. Millions of people perish in the gulags uh, and in the mines uh, of the Soviet Union. And there's, there's nothing they can do about it. They're helpless. And yet, and yet there, are, there are forces that allow us to make choices and to create different conditions. And very frequently, these very evil forces that take over for long periods of history that influence tens of millions of lives, somehow they do eventually come to an end. 
And if there are not people around who hold a dream about an alternative, about a different way of being, who visualize a world like Solzhenitsyn said about Russia, a world where a person could live without having to lie constantly and hiding what they really think. It was just a dream, it maybe still is in Russia. Uh, but in other countries, it's a dream that does come true. When you gain just the ability to express freely what you feel, uh, instead of having a predetermined text, as it were, that is put before you and that you have to recite like uh, uh, one recites the liturgy uh, in, in the Christian service or in uh, the prayers that one recites in a mosque or in a synagogue, the ritual prayers that are uh, required by your religion. So ladies and gentlemen, um, there about the uh, ups and downs uh, of a life that spanned uh, many decades, three continents, half a dozen countries, and finally, in a nice ring composition, as, as writers of novels are advised to do, that there's nothing better than the ring composition where you go back to the beginning at the end, I truly had the chance to go back to my country, and not only that, but actually to serve it uh, as its president. And that is, as I said, one of the moments when you do feel that it's not just your own personal life and your own personal uh, dreams uh, that you can uh, do something about, but where hopefully you can carry along other people and uh, either express the thoughts, the feelings that they feel in their hearts and they come and tell you, well, I felt this all along but I didn't know how to express it, thank you for putting it into words, and that's very satisfying or for sometimes being like a schoolmistress who says, now children, uh, I think that is the wrong way uh, to think about the world. Uh, I think uh, you should change and, and uh, you'd be better off uh, for it. Uh, both of these opportunities are very precious. It's, it's a burden, of course, of responsibility. Many people in formerly totalitarian regimes, uh, like in the former Soviet Union, look back with nostalgia on their youth under totalitarian systems and saying because they were not burdened with choices. And that meant they were not burdened with responsibility. The state was like a parent to them, or a foster parent saying, just keep obedient and quiet and we'll look after everything else. Um, we know better. Uh, and, and the leader of the country, as we see, for instance, uh, a new leader in Turkmenistan is turning into a new Turkmen Bashi. He could not resist the temptation to follow in the path of Turkmen Bashi, whom his people had actually uh, rejoiced in his passing and had hoped that they would have a different system. So he builds himself a copy of Peter the Great's monument in St. Petersburg, 31 meter high cliff of marble with a, an equestrian statue of himself all gilded on top of it. And the only difference with, between his statue and Turkmen Bashi's is the fact that this one doesn't turn around like a sunflower uh, along with the sunshine. Otherwise, it is very much the same. And apparently the people, the people donated, they were clamoring. Uh, the president exclaimed, the people were clamoring to have this, uh, this statue of him. And many of them freely and voluntarily gave up their monthly salaries, you see. Uh, to pay for the thing, just like I'm told by my relatives who remained in Latvia, that they used to have to give up every Saturday. Uh, they would go to work for the love of uh, uh, the beloved leader Stalin uh, and not get paid for it, uh, instead of having a Saturday off and resting. Because uh, Stalin was such a good father uh, to his people that, of course, out of great gratitude, they worked for free uh, on Saturdays. Uh, when you're a democratic leader, uh, it's not entirely like that. Um, one does not only see praise uh, of oneself uh, in the newspapers and, and on the television. Um, it's, uh, it sometimes can be a bit unsettling when people not only point out your foibles and your, and your weaknesses, but when they invent them. And that is, uh, that is rather irritating. Uh, when, when, when you're proud of some personal quality that you have, 
Uh, and, and somebody says, uh, somebody said recently that I speak very bad Latvian. And I, uh, granted that I did grow up uh, outside of my native country, I have always felt that I had great respect for my language, as I do for French, English, and other languages that I've come across uh, and tried to speak. Uh, and that hurt. That really hurt. You see, and one has to, and one has to be used to that sort of thing. And I know in Britain you have a very free press, and the free press sometimes feels it as their duty uh, to shred the reputation uh, of both politicians uh, or businessmen or the royal family. And sometimes, of course, it so happens that these reputations deserve to be shredded, uh, and it's it's the mere truth that is reported. Uh, but given all that. Uh, I, when I look back on my life, I say there's many a moment uh, I would not have chosen to have experienced. I'm told that difficulties and, and uh, barriers to your uh, life path, they form character. If I'd had a free choice, I'll tell you honestly, I would have been happy with a bit less character uh, on many an occasion. I thought I could get by, you know, with less character than I was forced to acquire. But then that is one of those things that one doesn't have choice about. So the best that you can do is indeed uh, to hope that it will build your character. And it's a very strange thing, but if I look back on my life, when people ask, well, how could you? You've never been a politician, you've never been a member of a political party. How could you possibly step into the shoes of a president and lead your country? and do so successfully, and actually, uh, and as a woman on top of it, uh, uh, as an exile, a former exile, uh, and, uh, and be popular. Uh, how, how can you possibly manage it? Uh, well, it seems that much of my life uh, went absolutely against all statistical or other expectations as to what should be the pattern, uh, which I think in many ways is very encouraging because uh, psychologists, my profession being the, uh, the attempt to explain human behavior and to predict somehow, at least to some extent, what happens. Uh, that is part of what science tries to do. But in real life, frankly, if we didn't have that hope of having some, some element of freedom of choice, some degrees of freedom, where we are not predestination is not uh, pushing us, or maybe if it's predestination, it's one that we can adopt and follow because we choose, we like it, uh, and then fulfill it. Uh, we can also turn our backs on it. I think in so many cases, in others we cannot. That is the human condition, and I don't think there are recipes. When I'm being asked, are there recipes for leadership? Are there recipes for leadership for women? Are there recipes for building resilience of character and resistance to stress? I'm afraid that there's no single recipe that can, can be offered uh, as a general pattern or a general cure to our ills. All of us have to stumble along on a path that has been our destiny and do our best to be the hero with a quest who comes to a happy end. Thank you very much.